Jewish Money Matters, episode 242, Ashley Feinstein Gersley, author of Financial Adulting, Everything You Need to Be a Financially Confident and Conscious Adult. You're listening to Jewish Money Matters, the podcast where Jewish wisdom and spirituality meet your money and your business. Money is a means to serve God in this world with joy, to build a life that leaves an imprint way beyond our time in this world. I want you to discover the secrets to Jewish wealth, to gain practical and spiritual tools to break free from the shackles of financial worry, to design the joyful, rich life that your soul desires. Welcome to Jewish Money Matters. I'm Yael Trush, and I'm so glad you're here. How do you feel about financial adulting? Sounds scary? The term makes you want to cringe? My guest assures us that we don't have to be scared. She's going to tell us how to adult financially, that is, while still feeling good about ourselves and not getting dragged down in the process. You're listening to Jewish Money Matters. I'm Yael Trush, your host. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm talking with Ashley Feinstein Gersley, author of the newly released book, Financial Adulting, Everything You Need to Be a Financially Confident and Conscious Adult. Ashley's a friend of the show. She was with us back in 2018. Today, we tackle her newest book, the need for this book, one that she and I both wish we had early on in our lives, but thankfully, we have now. The process of financial adulting, the mindset stuff that gets in the way, and frankly, some of the systemic issues at play which can't be ignored. I know you'll want to grab a copy of this book and gift it to a woman you love as well. A little bit more about Ashley. She's the founder of Fiscal Femme, a financial education platform, and the creator of the 30-Day Money Cleanse Program, which has helped thousands of women cultivate harmonious relationships with money and achieve their financial goals. As a trusted money expert, Ashley has been featured by Forbes, NBC, Glamour, and the New York Times, among media outlets. And I'm thrilled to have her back on the show. Here's Ashley Feinstein Gersley. Ashley Feinstein Garsley, welcome to Jewish Money Matters. How are you? It's so good to have you here. It's so great to be here. I'm doing well. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We haven't been in touch since back 2018 when you were last year. I mean, this was way before this show was this show. And I have to tell you a little funny story. This is really the show that I wanted to have back then. <laughs> I don't think I had the confidence to do it. We're, I'm actually podcasting already for five years. It's next week is our anniversary. Wow. But yes, but even even then, you know, I, I could see I had people like yourself. I had people like um, other influential people in the personal finance space, Barry Tesler, Barbara Stani. And I'm so grateful for that. And here we are today. You're coming back on the show um, with a new book that I'm so excited about, Ashley, Financial Adulting. I mean, I needed it, right? I needed that right after college. And I can't wait to dive in. Yes, look at that. I can't wait to read the book. But before we get into to all the juicy content, all the helpful information that you have in the book, I would love to start with something that you told me um, prior um, as we were kind of exchanging and uh, having a prior conversation. And that is that you you, you tackle a, a, an interesting topic, and I commend you for that. Um, in fact, I think right in the intro of your book, you tackle it, and that is Jews and money, meaning that stereotype, the economic libel you know, thing. And that was really bold. Why don't you tell us, you know, what did you say there and why did you think it was important for you to address this in this particular book? Mm, yes. So there's, it could be a very long story. <laughs> but, but I, <laughs> As the Jewish one is. 
<laughs> yeah. How many days do you have? But um, so you know what happened? My, so this book is very, the second chapter is called Equity and Money. And mm. it, talking about like the talking about privilege and talking about how money isn't the same for you if you are from a different gender, race, ethnicity, um, sexuality, if you have a disability, if you're a mother, like so many things affect every area of our personal finances. And um, after the murder of George, George Floyd, I got, you know, I started my anti-racism journey, unfortunately, late in life. And I worked with the sensitivity editor on this book. And honestly, like as a Jewish woman, I've definitely experienced anti-Semitism, but not to the extent of what I experienced in this recent, um, like re-rising of the conflict in May. Mm -hmm. And I had written this book where I am talking about and, you know, fighting for equity for all these different groups of people. And I'm like, what about my people, (laughs) you know? And, um, and so I, that's actually like, I started really learning, about anti-Semitism and how it works and how it's been used historically. And in a, you know, there's the economic libel is a huge part of anti-Semitism. And so I thought I can't, you know, it's the scope of the book isn't tackling anti-Semitism in its entirety. It's, it's a money book, but I can talk about it through that lens um, in this book and talk about money and um, these views that are persistent, you know, Mm and in a lot of different circles. So and and because the preface of a book is usually about yourself and introducing yourself, and as a proud Jewish woman, I thought it was important to have that in um, the beginning of the book. Yes, yes. There actually is. I don't know if you came across this book, but there's a very interesting book called Jews of Money by... Oh, um, yeah, do you have that book? No. It's by Abraham Foxman when he was he was the director of the, uh, the Anti-Defamation League. And it's Ooh. fabulous. It is fabulous. In fact, one of my guests sent it to me, you know, just because she thought it'd be interesting. It's a fabulous book. I'm writing it down. Yeah, you totally you totally should. It really does explore um, the libel in depth. It, it's it's really very fascinating. And you're right. Um, I think I think for us, and especially in the personal finance space, when we talk about, you know, definitely your race and your gender has an impact on 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 the access you have to resources and also to the information, right? Um, and maybe, maybe we feel like we can't relate as much to that story, but there's a deeper financial story of racism that we could totally relate. And it's important that we communicate that as well and not shy away from that. Yes. And I think there's like, it's, there's, um, the very like outward things and then the more kind of insidious in small, you know, that kind of slip in and people don't, might not notice them. And, um, so I think, yeah, it was, I'm still learning and I have a lot to learn about it, but um, I definitely, and I'm starting the journey now as like a 35 year old woman really digging in, but it's, it's really important. Yeah, it is important that we build that consciousness. So the book takes us in, it's, it's, it almost, I feel like I haven't read it yet and I'm dying to read it, but I feel like it probably takes us um, where your pre, your prior book left us and the 30 day money cleanse, cleanse. Now we're going into a deeper dive, right? Into our money management. I want to ask you, was it, you know, was the impetus the fact that you didn't have such a book? Because I know for myself, 
I didn't know anything, Ashley. Like I graduated college. I got my first investment banking job. No one had ever taught me how to deal with my student loans, how, what, what was a 401k and what was I was supposed to do or even negotiating. Like I didn't know to ask for more. And not only did I, I didn't ask for more in that one job, I didn't do it in my stuff, my job afterwards either. Like it was just, there was just so many things that I just didn't no. Um, was that the case for you? And is that related to why you wanted to write this book? Yes. So I remembered that we have very similar backgrounds that in, I was an investment banker in my first job, studied finance, knew nothing about money. And you're right. It, my first book was very much about budgeting and money mindset, but then people would say, well, what about investing or what about my loans or what about negotiating? And there were so many questions that even though that was really helpful and a great guide for that specific topic, there was like, what's next? What is like, and so the goal of writing this book, definitely, I wish I had this book when I graduated college um, in my first job, even in my first internship when I was earning money. And I think there's this idea that financial adulting is an age. It's like, right when you are earning your first paycheck, but a lot of us are starting to financial adult a lot later. And the because we don't yes. learn about this and there's kind of like the level up financial adulting topics in here too like estate planning and taxes and your credit score and mm-hmm. so there's um you know the, i my goal was and it was hard to put it all in one book it was double the length when i first wrote it and i had to cut it down um but the goal is that you read through it you learn a ton but it also can sit on your shelf and maybe it's not time to buy life insurance now, but you have your first kid and now, oh, I'm going to pull that book off the shelf because I remember Ashley talked about what I need to know, or my mm-hmm. friend just asked me about my 401k. Let me just go to that chapter on work optional so that it can be a resource to come back to. And my goal was to put everything I think a financial adult should know in this book. So um, it's definitely a how-to and then also talks about mostly a how-to with guidebook exercises like my first book, but also talks about some of the problems with our systems and how things aren't equal for men and women, or even worse, if you're a woman of color or a mother. So um, I go into some of that too, with the help of 35 experts that I interviewed. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Now that you said that, and I'm processing, you know, the fact that you and I didn't have misinformation or, you know, and all the financial mistakes we may have, (laughs) we made or whatever. A part of me does think that part of the reason I didn't understand a lot of these things is because I was an, I was an immigrant. I mean, granted, I was an American citizen. I grew up in Puerto Rico. I was born in Puerto Rico. So by, by birth, I was American. But the truth is Puerto Rico is a very different country, <laughs> even though people might not realize. And I don't think my family, I don't think my parents were really so familiar with all the things that, you know, are kind of standard in America. And then, you know, these 401ks and these federal student loans and all the things that we do have access to here. And even, even I'll say, even the idea of a woman negotiating for salary, maybe it was culturally foreign to them. So it's definitely not something that I grew, a lot of this lingo, I totally didn't grow up with, which really brings us to what you just said that you, you, you know, you weave into the book and, and it really speaks to what, what really I was set up to be, you know, kind of like 
to live this wealth gap narrative, this, you know, let's go there. Why don't we go there? Because really, it really does impact the wealth gap. Um, and, I, and I know that it's something that you tackle in the book. Yes. The, so it's interesting, too, because there's so much nuance to it. Like there's the immigrant per, an experience of being the first in your family to potentially go to college or be the first or at least a one here and have go through the student loan process. Right. Have a company 401k or a W2 salary. And so, and then even for the people like whose parents may have had that, I find they still don't teach them about money because they make a ton of mistakes or they feel like, who am I to educate them? Or, and so what I found is it's never malicious. Even if the parents have the information, right. it's, it's, or sometimes it's a place of like, they're so young and innocent. I don't want to burden them with this because to them, it's so burdensome, but to a kid, they don't have that negative connotation Mm. of money. And so they wouldn't, they wouldn't necessarily experience it that way, but there's a, a protection or feeling like, who am I to teach it or an actual never having experienced it, um, that ends up having people not. And also I've had through my interviews for the book, even someone who's, parents or grandparents were terrific investors. They only talked to the boys in the family about it and not to the women growing up, even when they were like, she, I think she said, when I was finally in my MBA program, I'm like, can you talk to me about this? Like, I want to learn. So there's like so many instances of this information not being passed down and talking about the wealth gap. So I break it down um, in the book and we talk about some historic or I catch myself saying we in the book because I interviewed 35 people. There were like editors galore. So it feels like some, like I worked with a team on this team effort. (laughs) Um, It takes a village people also to give birth to a book. (laughs) Yes. So I keep saying we, but I'm like, really? I said it, but um, the, the wealth gap has like this historical, like from when, from, from enslavement, when Mm. America had the free labor of, black Americans. And then, um, through like the native American, like different practices where indigenous people and laws lost their land. And then this keeps getting perpetuated. And then there's like current oppression and discrimination. Like there's a chapter in the book on buying a home. And if you are black and your home has pictures of your family, or you're there for the appraisal studies show that your home is appraised for 23% less. And that's Mm -hmm. like, your current asset, um, not even accounting for the, the like taken away internet generational wealth from all those years of enslavement or um, other types of policies. So it was like, it was through my interviews. And I think the good news and bad news of being a financial adult is that you really don't have to know any, everything to be the financial adult. It's okay to still make mistakes. I learned so much from the people that I interviewed and I still have so much to learn. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of, the bad news is it's you're never done, but the right. good news is, is you don't have to know everything. There's experts and people to learn from, and you can always be learning and things are changing. But from my interviews, I saw very clearly that our finances in every single area were impacted by this. And it's all interconnected because when you're paid less from the wage gap, you have less to invest. You're taking out more debt. If you're a woman or a person of color with the same credentials, mm-hmm. you're getting a higher interest rate. That means more of your money is going to interest, you know? So it just like, every, it was, it was just very apparent that it impacted every area. Yes. Um, 
Yes. Um, you'd be fascinated by this, but I did not know that that fact about purchasing at home. And if you're a black family and there's pictures, I did not know that. And it's, it's quite shocking. I'm, I'm not surprised though. And it reminded me of a recent story, um, I, that I just, I just read, um, in Ball Harbor, Florida, you know, where we had the Surfside, um, tragedy only, what was it? A couple months ago, right? That area used to be a no Jews. Now it's a thriving Jewish community. It was used to be a no Jews allowed area. And when the rabbi first came to settle there, um, he wasn't allowed to purchase a house. So how did they buy their first home? So she, his wife is a very witty woman and very outgoing. She happens to be a real estate broker too now by career, but she actually finagled her, like her way into the appointment to this property that they wanted to buy and kept her home, her husband home because he was visibly Jewish and she wasn't. She was a very elegant, fancy lady. Nobody could, you know, overtly tell that she's Jewish and she finagled the deal. And then only then after they realized that they had sold the property to, to a Jewish family. And that's how that community started. Can you believe this? And this is only 30 years ago. My dad actually, so he, my dad's in real estate and mortgages. And um, when I was writing about this got taken out of the book, but just that deeds said like, you couldn't be black, you couldn't be a Jewish person and own this home. Mm-hmm. And my dad remembers seeing advertisements in that same area that said, always a view, never a Jew, like for marketing properties there like it was yeah and in in his lifetime you know he yeah this is this is this is not that far back people we've come a long way but i think we have a long way to go still um so why don't we talk about (laughs) as we're to as we're as we're tackling all the things right um Mm -hmm. like you said you you said it beautifully like don't feel like you have to know it all now you you know we learn as we in the doing, that's where the learning is happening. And there's resources like people you can ask and there's wonderful books like yours. But really, there's so many, Ashley, like so many financial balls to joggle as an adult, right? It's student loans and it's credit card debt and it's your monthly budget and your retirement and then investing out of retirement and buying or not buying real estate. You know, there's also advancing your career. There's just so much stuff that comes with that big word adulting and yeah. people get overwhelmed. I think a lot of what happened is for us is we also got overwhelmed by the list. And so we drop, we drop 90% of that and we hope and pray, pray that somehow it's going to, you know, work itself out, but that's probably not the right approach. So how should we be looking at all these things and, you know, kind of like lessening the overwhelm and setting the priorities? Um, because a lot of times we're going to have to be addressing things in tandem. Um, a lot of these priorities might bump up against each other, which, you know, it's only natural. So help us through the process for those of you who are listening for us, who are listening to us and are thinking, I just, I just don't even know how could I do all this? Yes. And I like really empathize with that feeling just because we work, like if you're working, if you have a family, if you have <laughs> other, it, like, this is not what we're spending our days doing, right? Right. We're- We don't have open days to just manage our finances. So it's, I think a lot of it is knowing what we need to know and also taking it a step at a time. So I think when you think about how we typically make New Year's resolutions, it's like this idea that we're going to be someone else tomorrow. We're transforming, you know, like tomorrow I'm this whole new person. You know, like that's, that's not necessary to make, to be a financial adult. It's also sets us up for failure because Mm. there's no way like like I mentioned, there's very little chance that I'm saying my whole Sunday is putting together a budget and then 
the next Sunday, you know, like that I'm able to carve out all this time. So um, what I'm a big fan of, and it actually is a win because it makes it easier and it makes it more likely that we'll stick with it is just taking small, consistent actions. And Mm. it doesn't, and if anything feels like as like, for example, if I say an action and someone might say, sure, I'm going to do that. But then in their head, they think there's no way I'm going to do that. That seems really scary and too much time. We want to break those steps down even further because our progress in our financial lives is not linear. It's not, I'm saving $5 now. So it's going to take me a thousand years to buy a house. No, like when you, you went from being not as a non-saver to a saver And now as we take those little steps, um, each and every week they build and we have some, we have exponential progress. So I think I would recommend never belittling those little steps and, um, just keep moving. Like if you have 10 minutes, what is a step you can take, you know, um, instead Mm -hmm. of feeling like I'm doing nothing or I'm spending all week dealing with my finances. Yes. Yes, we definitely have to we break it down in small, actionable steps. I think it's key. Um, and listen, reading the book, which walks you through all the important stuff that kids at, you know, oh, you're not maxing out your 401k. So maybe that should go in the priority list. Maybe I should call HR, right? So that's a tiny bite-sized step that can have a huge impact. Impact. And it's just, you know, a quick phone call or a quick, you know, meeting or even logging into the account. And, you know, but right. if we don't, if we don't read about it or become aware of it to even make that decision to take those steps. Um, now I do want to ask you about, <laughs> there's people who might be listening to, to us and they're, they might be, you know, they might want to live they might be dreaming big and they want to live their life. And it's something that you alluded at the beginning of your, uh, answering my last question. They don't want to be tied down by all this stuff. You know, so how do we reconcile the fact that, yes, we, we should be living lives with meaning and purpose and dedicating our time and energy to what's really important in life, right? With the fact that these boring type, quote unquote, boring, you know, fundamentals are all play also an important role. How do we help people reconcile that? Yeah, it's a really good question. So I would say one of the most powerful financial rituals that I recommend is having a money party every month. Mm. And that's time. And you can have them more frequently. Some people like to have them every week, but it's just time we carve out of our schedules to deal with our money. And it's a great time Mm -hmm. to look at your spending, to look at your goals, any things that come up throughout the month that are not urgent can happen in the money party. And what I think is great about that and reframing, because I love how you're talking about this, like push and pull of, I want freedom and to live my life. But this other thing is like, I need to do it. Realizing that planning, like having Mm -hmm. a budget, which we often give connotations of limiting our fun or restricting us actually allow us to build in the things, right? If there's room, we could build in things that are fun and meaningful to us. And we can actually see if they work. Like if we, if the income can cover that Mm -hmm. and we can still save for our goals, then we can do those things without feeling guilty Mm -hmm. and with peace of mind. And so for me, that like knowing that allows me to enjoy the things that I do choose to indulge in or do to choose to do that are more frivolous because I know that they work with the plan. 
And I found for myself and others in the community that if we don't plan, kind of everything feels guilty. So yeah, we might feel like we're free of all the plans, but it's not really feeling free. It's kind of like this impending doom of, I don't know if I can retire ever. (laughs) I don't know what's happening. My debt's rising. Like that is not a fun way to be on a vacation, right? Versus I've saved up for this. I'm going to enjoy every second. I know I can get the massage, you know, like, so um, being clearer, like that clarity, I think allows us to enjoy the moments a lot more. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, fully, fully on board. I mean, in the, there's no better feeling than going on that trip, that vacation, and you can do whatever you want because you've saved up for that and there's no guilt and you're not coming back from the trip to think about how in the world am I going to pay for this, right? Right. And if there's right? studies that show that like we actually don't, if we haven't, if it's on a credit card or we have to pay at the end, we actually aren't enjoying the end of the vacation because we're so stressed about thinking about having to pay for it versus if mm-hmm. not even if we've prepaid, but if we've pre-saved or know how it's going to happen, we don't have that same doom coming at the end of the vacation. Yes, 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 yes. I want to ask about these money parties because when it comes, I, I we call them money dates in our family and, and we actually, my husband and I do them weekly. They're pretty short though. They, they tend to be 30 minutes, sometimes an hour, but for sure not more than that. Um, when we are married, it becomes of the essence. It, it really it really does. And a lot of people tell me, well, I can't really get my husband to sit down and talk about money. Um, how, you know, what have you found in, in your community? Um, what are some things that people can do to really bridge that and try to get both parties on board to be part of this conversation? Because it's not just you, it's, 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 it's a whole unit who is utilizing the money left and right. So together we have to make sure it goes to the places that we want it to go. Right. I think a great place to start with money conversations and relationships is what you want. Like, what Mm -hmm. are we going at? Like, what is the goal of this? What are we going after? Because that can provide a lot of motivation. The other thing I found, especially if money, so if someone is saying they're not able to talk about money with a partner, it's probably a stressor. And one of the things I love about the money parties or dates is that it compartmentalizes these conversations. So instead of, you know, what happened with the Amex bill? You know, like these things (laughs) popping up. It's like, okay, let's talk about it at the money party. So it's one hour or two hours or half hour where you can also very intentionally set the, set the mood of it instead Mm of it being a, Hey, I'm running out the door. What happened with this bill? You know, it's like, okay, this is a no shame zone. This is no judgment. Let's be kind. And you can really set that intention going into having these conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think also like, instead of, I think if it's never been talked about, the goals is a great place to start. And also just how you were raised. What are your first memories? Um, what is, I think a lot of times when we're having a disagreement about money, instead if someone, you know, I find that there's typically a spender and a saver in a relationship and we polarize each other that um, instead of saying, why did you spend so much? Like share like, what is that triggering for you? What are you afraid of? You know, and mm-hmm. like, I don't want to do what my parents did, or I don't want to um, not be able to do X, Y, Z that we've been saving for. So really get to like the the underlying fear of what is triggering that anger or that reaction. And I think it creates a lot more empathy 
and able to um, get on the same page versus just thinking someone's bickering at you for no reason. Yes. And I, and I think part of the message that you and I are trying to communicate also is I think in a marriage, not talking about money, it's not an option. (laughs) It's like, you can't just use that as an excuse. My, my husband won't talk about money. Well, that's not really an option. (laughs) Right. There's so many reasons. Yes. (laughs) I'm not saying get rid of him, but figure it out, but that's not really a healthy option. Speaking about healthy things. Um, Yesterday, I was having a money date with my husband, and this really came up, which is very interesting that it did come up. My husband pointed out to the fact that um, there's still some some of some narrative that we've internalized where the message that we internalize is almost like it's not as important for us as women to have the skill sets to make a manage money as it is for the male in the relationship, which is a very outdated message and very harmful, both for women and for the couple, for the institution of marriage. Um, maybe you can talk about that a little bit, because I think as, as, as women, we have to know that we have bought into that. And it's almost like we, yes, we do the thing and we start our career, but we're always kind of like, eh, it, it's not as important and I will take a pause anyway at some point. And it's, it, it it's, doesn't seem like it's a dangerous thing, but it is a dangerous thing. Yes. Yeah. I'm trying to, there was a statistic, something of like, even women now having this idea that the white knight is coming or like, yeah, the- Prince Charming is coming. <laughs> and you know, when Barbara Stanley wrote that book already, what, what was it? I, I don't know. It was a really, a, a while ago. I feel like we still have this in us. Yeah. It's crazy. But even myself, like my husband was pointing at it where we're having this whole conversation. And he, he's like, I want you to notice this, that, you know, yes, number one, Obviously, we, we have to know that God is responsible for the results, but we're really both responsible for the effort in ach- achieving our financial goals. It's not that we have a goal and, hey, you husband, it's your job to deliver on the results. Like that old collective Prince Charming story that we're carrying around. Yeah. And I think, you know, I'm definitely not an expert on everything like on this at all, but I what I see is that it's in the stories. Like, even if you just like watch movies yeah, and like some of them looking back, I'm like, I can't believe I watched this as a kid. And you know, the, the last generation, just how we were raised, how we see our families operate. Um, and also I, that pressure. So first of all, when, if uh, the woman in a relationship is not knowing where the money is or understanding of the money and, it can feel kind of like a burden being lifted to not have to deal with that or understand it, but it's a powerlessness. It's like yeah. a giving up of power. And um, also if something were to happen, you know, God forbid, right. Problem. And I think that on the other side of it, it also is a tremendous pressure to the men in the relationship that, um, and in society, right. It's part of toxic masculinity that yes. they have to be providing. They have to do more. Like it's all up to them. Um so I think a hundred percent that it's something that is um, socialized and reinforced and um, something to, but something to not give up on and continue to work towards mm-hmm, mm-hmm. having that equity in the money conversation. And you know what? I think another thing I see a lot that came up when you were talking about it is working with couples. 
I noticed that so a lot of times the woman, if it's a like a hetero um, sexual couple, the woman knows just as much, maybe not more than the man about it, but he it sounds a lot more confident. Yes. <laughs> and What's he probably that. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, well, what you're and so like there is this feeling of responsibility to know and understand, and maybe there's a faking there about it. Um, but I think there's this feeling that, oh, he's already so far ahead and knows so much more when really not. And that mm-hmm. if she was part of those decisions, they would be made a lot um more soundly. So yes. um just an observation I've had in my couples. Yes. And two heads think better than one. Yes. <laughs> in and most and cases. like in most cases, the partnership has different, each person has different strengths and so, and helps mitigate some of our weaknesses. And so I agree that having two people making decisions is more powerful. Yes. Yes. As you were writing this book on financial adulting, were there any things that kind of surprised you that you were like, Ooh, I didn't approach this this way. I didn't know, you know, as you're, as you're conducting these interviews or that you were like, maybe I should change my approach on this. Were there any surprises? So definitely a lot of learning, but one thing that I realized I did wrong was, um, estate planning. Oh yeah. Tell me (laughs) I interviewed, um, a trust and estates attorney and we through my husband's last job, we had, you know, it was like a legal service and they set up the wills for our children and all of that. And anyway, when I was interviewing this attorney and really that was a place where the nuance and the details are so important and it really depends on your state and so many things. Um, But I realized that the way we did it really was not optimized at all and would create a headache for the children if something would have happened to us. Mm. And so um, when I, I actually made a note, I'm like, we need to really level up and financial adult with this estate plan um, after I interviewed her. That's, that's, that's great. And I think that speaks to one of your initial points, which is, you know, you can keep the book and you, you'll see yourself in those steps, right? Wherever you are and okay, I need to focus now on this, but I'm going to get to a later stage in my life where I really, I'm glad I'm reading this and I'll come back to it, right? I might not have kids right now. So life insurance might not be a thing. A will might not be a thing, but it'll, be, you know, it'll need to be a thing in the future. And if you're not aware of it, um, it could cause a lot of financial problems. Yes. And what I found from interviewing the the trust and estates attorney, her name is Lorianne Douglas, was that a lot of times people don't make these plans unless they've seen a family member or a friend go right. through a really bad situation from it, or um, they've had a close, like a close call with their own health or something. So um, it's hopefully more and more as it's talked about and people are reading the book, it's something they'll do more proactively and not have to have like a horrible situation to have them um, prepare for that. Hmm. Speaking of talking, because a part of this is really getting becoming more open um, and speaking with more people about about it, because how can we learn if we don't ask the questions, right? And we're so, so terrified to ask. Um, I, I wonder how you know, in your, as you became, you know, a coach and you started, you know, becoming a, a financial expert, did, did your circle of friends actually start coming to you and asking? Cause I'm finding that even as a podcast host in this, and even though I teach a program, 
it is not that many people that are still from my close intimate relationships that's that come to me for advice. It's very interesting. There's still that a little bit of that resistance and that's okay, but (laughs) I I don't know it all that, but I think there needs to be a more open conversation. Yes. I think that makes sense that it would be not from your close circle, because I think Mm -hmm. it's harder to talk about with people you're close with and admit that you don't, the vulnerability of it, or if it's a specific question, like details about your financial situation. I think people do like the anonymousness of it. Um, but I, so I would say definitely f- like have noticed people are very open when they don't know me and they have questions. Right. Um, I have the same. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and more and more definitely flo- like depends on the person if they're very open about it or um, some people love talking about money, even if they're in a close relationship with me. So I think, um, I think that's interesting. I think there's a lot of shame in not knowing. And that's something that I wish I knew is that really nobody knows about this. And yes, we think that everybody else knows and we're the only ones, but it's really the opposite. And when I started doing this, like when I started the blog, the fiscal femme was 2011 and people, I thought, okay, I don't know about this. So other people must not, because I studied finance. I worked in finance and then I started giving talks and it really didn't matter if I was speaking at a bank if I was speaking at an MBA program, one time I was speaking with a mentor, we were having coffee and he was helping me with my business. And then at the end, he's like, can we talk about finances? And I'm like, oh my gosh, it's everyone. Like nobody knows about this. Right. So I think that can really help make it less scary to talk about because, um, you know, there's a lot of, re- I think there's a lot of pretending and a mm-hmm. lot of, um, by keeping us not knowing, then people can take advantage of us. They can sell us things. We have less power, but um, yeah, I think that, that even though it's depressing that nobody knows, I think that is kind of has helped me and a lot of people be more open about it. Yes. And this is why we need books like yours. We have to normalize the conversation and we have to make the information available. Um, The more, the more we're learning about it and normalizing learning about it and exploring it, the better we're all going to be. (laughs) And and if we go back to the idea of, you know, solving systemic issues and issues of inequality, right? That's also a great motivator um, because money is this tool for change. So if we want to have change, and I wonder if you could address that a little bit, because that has to do with the mindset, right? Sometimes, sometimes saving and investing and all that stuff, honestly, can be really boring, right? But if we can get behind a really clear why, then that will change. So help us through that, because I think there's, there's a little bit of a struggle there for people. Yes, I love that connecting it to the why. So one of the things that really motivated me when I started doing this is that I saw how money gave me freedom in my choices and Mm. power over how I want to spend my time. And that is very important, especially for women who might have less of that, right? Given the inequalities that are definitely financial, which I talk about, but in a lot of other ways too. Um, And also I think, so if we look at how important it is for women to be wealthy, it is like in everything. It is the world will be so much better if women have more money. They're yeah. giving back to their community. They're investing in their family. 
companies, like even just like the economy, there's statistics that if we had equal labor, GDP would go up by a great percentage that we'd companies do better when they have diverse leadership. Like it's everything. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's a win, win, win. And I find that just like you mentioned, like negotiating for myself is great. Like I want to have more. That's great. But when I view it as I am paving the way for other women to negotiate, or I can do this and now I can teach people what I learned, like I am making it possible for, I'm doing it for women everywhere. And having that, that feels very, that's different feeling going into a meeting. And um, the other thing I found in talking to people is there's usually like a person in your life who kind of nudged you and I, it might be the coworker who said, you should really look into that 401k thing, or here's what I earn. Let's compare so we can see if it's fair or like, what, here's how I budget, you know, and the more of us, the more we learn and the more we know we can be that for other people. So mm-hmm. on our own, we're helping close these gaps by getting more wealthy, but then we're lifting up the other people in our lives. So that's, you know, I get yes. chills thinking about how important that is. Yes. And it speaks to the the power of, of a woman, right? A woman is really influential. We, we are the epicenter of our homes, right? We really have the most influence. And, and, and in our communities, we're so influential. I love that that visual um, of, you know, I'm doing this not just for myself, but really it's for the women that come behind me, my daughters and my nieces and my sisters and my friends, right? It, it really is a collective effort. <laughs> And 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 an important one um, that maybe our grandmothers didn't have the opportunity, even our mothers. (laughs) Seriously. Um, So, yes. So before we wrap it up, um, Ashley, I'd love to ask you if there is, you know, one piece of advice that as you're coming out of this financial adulting book, um, that you want to leave, obviously we're going to read the book, but you want to leave listeners with that you feel it's like, oh my gosh, like this is a nugget that I need everybody to know. Mm. So not to go backwards, but just to the point on the mothers, there's in the book, I talk about the the racial wealth gap and also the gender wealth gap and a statistic in there. I think it was 1977 mm. that women could get a credit card on their own without right. having a a man in their life, a co-signer. Co- co-signer. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. This is like recent history and it makes sense again. Was, like, it's so recent that I was a baby. I was born in 76. <laughs> right. And so I think too, when we're, I think in personal finance, there's a lot of blaming of women. Like, why aren't you doing this? You should be knowing, like, we couldn't even have a credit card. Like we are doing a great job. So I think, um, and even like with the negotiating, women are negotiating as much as men now, but there are real repercussions when we do that can be negative. So really, oh yes, like that. It's not our fault. Like yes, we can be pop, we can be proactive and take action, but there are reasons why women are more hesitant to negotiate. Real implications. So just that just got me on a tangent. But I'd say that a bit a nugget takeaway, um, because I so for me it's all about action. It's like, what is the step? And if, and if I could have leave people with something, it's like, what step were you inspired to take by this conversation? Take it within 48 hours, have someone hold you accountable. Um, so for me, it's that. And I think making the step small, 
making this as fun as it can be. Like at my money parties, mm-hmm. I get cozy. I'll have tea or wine. I'll put on a money party playlist. Like I can reward myself after, you know, how do you, the language we use is important. So just how do we have a little more grace and compassion, make this a little more pleasurable to deal with our money so that we actually do it and take the steps. Yes, absolutely. You, you just remind me very recently, I had a situation and I was so proud of my husband and of my mother-in-law who raised such a nice guy. My, my mother-in-law is, a, is very, was very much ahead of her time. She's a big feminist, but my husband was in a situation where he had two people deliver on a project happened to be a male and a female. And she had not quoted him on a price and the male had, and, um, he asked her, you know, how much you want to, this was great. It was fabulous. How much you want to get paid? You haven't told me. And she was like kind of fumbling and she didn't know what to, she's like, well, I don't really know. And he immediately said, well, I'm going to pay her exactly what I'm paying this other guy because why wouldn't I? Right. <laughs> and, and then I said, well, you should have paid him more, but, <laughs> but at least he, his default mode was like, no, there is a price already in the market and I know what it is and I'm not going to underpay you. Um, so it's, it's a consciousness. And now she has that data point of what it's worth, yeah. which is huge for her to know going forward. Yes. Yes. Um, so I, th- I think part of that message is we all have a piece in this, both male and women. <laughs> we have to know as women what to ask for <laughs> and, and all that. But also um, the men out of the world also have to know. Um, and we can get the whole tangent of negotiating against women. There's a whole thing. Uh, <laughs> maybe you have to bring you back. Maybe that'll be in the next book, right? <laughs> what we face when we negotiate, because there certainly is... Um, there, there's a lot to, to, to dig, dig there, but let's do some of what I call Jewish money matters fill in the blanks. And this is a part of the show. It's a little similar to what we did a couple of years back where I'm going to give you an open ended sentence and you'll finish it with the first thing that comes to mind. Okay. Okay. All right. When I give charity or tzedakah, I like to give to cleft organizations. Yes. And I do remember that you told me that yes. last time. Yes. And yeah. we didn't talk about this, but now you're a mother of two. Yes. Yeah. So there's two, there's two babies and there's two books. Congratulations. And by the way, didn't the book come out yesterday? It did. Yes. <laughs> so this is like literally hot off the press people. Yeah, okay. I'm re- birth recovery. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so exciting. So, so super exciting. Okay. I'd love to make more money because, mm, because it, there's so many reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the first reason? I guess paving the way for other women to do the same. Yes. Something I wish I'd learn about money growing up is nobody feels like an adult. Nobody knows what they're doing. (laughs) (laughs) I used to think there was like this moment where you felt like an adult, you know, then there's not, you never really feel like one. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yes. I like that. Okay. Um, Ashley money, spiritual or physical. What do you think? Oh, very much both. Yeah, I feel like a lot. I feel like people definitely err on the physical and not the spiritual. And it's a really Mm -hmm. important part. Yes, absolutely. Something I splurge on unapologetically is Mm. what do I splurge on babysitting? (laughs) Oh, good for you. I mean, how else can you write? (laughs) I mean, two books and what is it four years? Right. Well, also, this is my we were in 
we were traveling with my parents and our littlest one was just learning to crawl and we had we were with them and it was like no they were they were doing fun things on our trip and we weren't because we had all the naps and my mom challenged me to get a weekly babysitter Mm, and she's like I know it's expensive but it's really so worth it you need to have date nights and start going out and and so it's been life-changing I took on that challenge and so I definitely splurge on our weekly Yes, it is life changing. And for those people who might hear this, I might struggle with, you know, how could I like indulge in that? Think about how you're helping that other person with your money, like, mm-hmm. right, that might be putting her through college that might that's helping her feed her family. I mean, again, <laughs> it all flows, right? And it's there for us to create an impact. And if it's something that is aligned with our values, and it's helping us advance our goals, which in this case, it's a it's a family goal, it's a spiritual goal, it's your marriage it's whatever, right? Then please put it out there because it's helping somebody else as well. Yes. And I do feel like I'm a better everything when I have fun, and I'm, you know, not burnt out. And but it definitely takes financial privilege. It's expensive. So it it does. It does. So all the, you know, going back to, we got to make more money and we got to manage it smartly so that we can do that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, Ashley, spender or saver? You know, it's fun. So I definitely have been way more of a saver. Yeah. Um, probably spe- it's like been a journey. So spender until I started the fiscal femme, probably overly a saver. And then recently I've been like, really, um, I was talking with someone about like lifestyle creep versus an intentional upgrade and just intentionally choosing to spend more because that conversation, honestly, was when that conversation with my mom that really flipped it for me. It's like, what is the point of all of this if I'm not enjoying life? And so very much balancing, trying to balance, but because I was so far in the saver direction, I am now moving up to more of a, you know, and a lot of the things I'm considering them investing in my well-being and my happiness. And um, so I'm I'm kind of moving to the other side a little bit more. Yes, I know exactly what you mean. And how does your husband feel about, um, how is he on the journey? So it's funny because we value spending money on different things. Uh And so I very much do not value buying things. And he really feels like the, the gratification of purchasing something, if he can hold it, that's when he feels Mm. like it was worth it. Whereas I'm like, we live in an apartment. I don't want more things like that. And also things have to be organized and put away and fixed and just feels like less things is less work. Um, (laughs) But I love experiences like going to shows and going on trips and um, investing in educational things. And so it is interesting balance and having so we are, we have, our children are away all day or with other people all day. Like in, we have um, the au pair now and my son's in school. And so I want the, the time at night to be more quality. So I would prefer to have like <laughs> help cleaning and help with meals. And so, and that to him feels very intangible. So it is always a, again, I feel like a reframe of me recently was thinking like, we both have our strengths and the compromise is probably where we should be. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Which speaks to the importance of those money parties, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. We were having a similar conversation last night. Um, Today I'm most grateful for. Um. Honestly, I'm so great. The book just came out and I'm just grateful for these types of conversations where um, just rich, rich pun intended, um, 
conversations about changing how we talk about and interact with money. So thank you. So, so important. Finally, I'm Ashley Feinstein Gersley, and I believe Jewish Money Matters because Ooh, Jewish Money Matters really matters. I guess it go, to me, it's like goes back to the equity thing and, you know, and our values and because Jewish values matter. Yes, exactly. And if we leave with, I was having this conversation with, um, Joe Saul Sihai was here on the show this week and he, he was saying, you know, and we, if you lead with values, you solve the money problem for everybody. (laughs) So true. So, so true. Ashley, congratulations on the new book. Keep us posted. We can find it anywhere, right? It's on Amazon. It's on your website. Tell us where we can find more. I think you have some goodies also that come with the book. If we go on your website to give us more info. Yes. So you can find the book at, it should be sold everywhere books are sold. It's sold out everywhere right now, except Amazon. (gasps) Wow. That's Um, great. Yes. But hopefully it'll be restocked soon. And it's financialadultingbook.com. So you can Mm -hmm. always find it through there. And what's really fun about the book, because I had a hard time sticking with what I was able to say in the book is there's a toolkit. So I allude all throughout the book to a toolkit that has templates and calculators and lists of my favorite things and the people I interviewed. And so there's a lot of goodies attached to that toolkit that you get when you order the book. I love that because it goes back to something you said before that it's you're all about the action. So am I, right? It's like, okay, so it's very practical. I'm not giving you a theoretical book. I'm giving you the tools so that you can start getting in the action mode right away and making this happen. Congratulations, Ashley. Beautifully done. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me and for the kind words. Thanks to Ashley Feinstein Gersley for stopping by. You can find her book, Financial Adulting, Everything You Need to Be a Financially Confident and Conscious Adult on Amazon or anywhere books are sold and on her website, thefiscalfem.com. You can also find her on Instagram at FiscalFem. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave a review and rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. This Friday, I will be answering your money questions. You can send those in via email at yael at yaeltrush.com. DM on Instagram at Yael Trush or via WhatsApp at the number 832-317-6778. As always, I will be picking a reviewer of the week, so be sure to send those reviews on Apple Podcasts, and I'll be awarding a 20-minute session with me, which I always look forward to those. And to my five winners of the five-year anniversary giveaway this week, you will hear from my team and start receiving your gifts. Congratulations again. I'm pretty sure you already know who you are. You can also check Instagram for details on that, but most likely you've heard privately already from us. And you'll be hearing from us again as we hash out the details to get those goodies out to you this week. All right, looking forward to your questions and I'll see you here Friday where we'll tackle those. Have a great week and remember, your Jewish money matters.